it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. Something seems really dumb about this, but here we go. We spent a lot of time talking about 2018, now we need to look at 2019 and what it holds for us. Because 2018 was a bloody good year, represented in whether it's at the Academy Awards where we see it or whether it's in the pictures that weren't nominated but which we know were fantastic, like Deborah Granick and Lim Ramsey's output. Um, and well, you had a little bit of a diss of, of how many franchise films occupy the top 10 films there, but I have to say most of them are pretty good, I'm not knocking that. Yeah. You know, Mission Impossible's great, The Incredibles 2's great, uh, uh, Black Klansman's pretty good, um, you know, I think it's a bit of a it's a bit of a shallow film, but Infinity War is entertaining. These are bad films. Uh, it's just a shame that you don't see more original content mm. that high up in the commercial stakes. And there's a couple of films that are essentially holdovers: The Favorite and The Sisters Brothers. They came out in the US in 2018. We received The Favorite here just a week ago. I've seen it already. January the first, it came out. Yeah, yeah, and so. I haven't mentioned that because that's clearly good. Well, I should imagine it will be one of my favourite films in 2019. Luke and I are boosters for Lanthimos. We didn't come in at Dogtooth. The Lobster was the first one we saw. Then we both caught Killing of a Sacred Deer, which is deranged, and I adored it. The I wanted to watch to it, but it I heard to. about the opening scene, and I was like, I don't want to watch that. Oh, yeah, yeah, which is a little bit like with Nocturnal Aminals, when at the beginning uh, Tom Ford has six or seven severely obese women dancing naked. As he is making a point, and it's an accurate point, but it's not a date movie for that reason. It goes on for all the entire opening credits. Yeah, but I'd still rather watch that than a heart operation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, some people. So I, I, I would probably people, like Killing yeah. Sacred Deer, but I'm so squeamish. I should just go and close my eyes for five minutes and open them. Or, well, or not watch the. That's the thing, it's a difficult one because you could not watch it at all. I, by which I mean, you could leave the room or skip forward three, four minutes to avoid that scene, but then are you receiving what Lanthimos is attempting no, to communicate. I'm not. That's probably Possibly why I not. chose not to watch it rather than do watch yeah. it. Because I actually saw Graham Norton live <laughs> with my wife. And it, on, on that week, it was Farrell and Kidman promoting that film. Yeah. And they talked about it. And again, Farrell talked about they watched The Operation and how they could the smell of barbecued flesh was in the air. Oh, yeah. And I was just like, nope, no, <laughs> not for me, thank you. There's a magnificent bit early on in that picture, which is meant to convey the relationship between Kidman and Farrell, when um, Kidman strips before coitus and says, general anaesthetic, and lays there prone. And, and clearly it's an insight into what they get up to. This is a sex game that they play. And I sat at the back of the theatre just thinking, oh, this is superb, that a director is willing to go this far and then to depict, honestly, weirdness that's difficult to handle. And then the rest of the film goes even further. But the favourite is this year's, and it's good as well. It's it's like Lanthimos for normal people, I suppose, because a lot of uh, what I've heard is um, many audiences uh, going to see it, and this genteel audiences, mums and dads in their forties and fifties, sixties, and uh, and saying, "Oh, it was very quirky, and I, I really enjoyed it. It was very weird." And I think, "Don't watch his other stuff because you are not ready. If you think <laughs> that's odd, you're not ready for Lanthimos well, when he's firing on all cylinders." The lobster. My, my wife very rarely wants to go to cinema. Yeah. <laughs> And The Lobster was something that she was like, oh, can we go and see that film, The Lobster? Um, it really, uh, I found that film seemed to really connect with feet, with women. 
for some reason. Oh. Like loads of women I know either loved it or just were really keen to see it. And most guys I know really like the first half, but don't like the second half. It was a really odd gender yeah. split. I noticed how that uh, split I noticed in terms of how that film was interpreted. He's one of our patron saints. We talked briefly uh, in the past about witnessing Chazelle becoming an interesting, important mm. director. We're three films into him. Um, now I know that Lanthimos has done more than the three films we're talking about. But he's almost a patron saint for the podcast because all three films we love, me yeah. and Luke. And it's not because we were told to love them, but we came to them organically and realised, yeah, we dig what this cat's up to. And it's strange. Yeah. Should we bash through the films that come out this year? Yeah, I'll just mention Sisters Brothers. So that was one that, as is so often the case, it got released in America three or four months ago. The friends I know that go to the London Film Festival, they saw it in October, November. They've been talking about it since then. I can't join that conversation because I'm a peon. But it's Odiard's first English language picture with John C. Riley and Joaquin Phoenix as bandits or rustlers in the Old West. Can't remember who they're I've ably the supported book. by. Is it Gyllenhaal? Anyway, the book's I'm very, very good. Excited. I know that much. Oh, right, right. Okay. Yeah. Who wrote the book? Don't know. <laughs> I only read it Stanley, maybe? Jack Kirby? Let's go with Stanley. Usually one of them. Yeah. Right, so what are, what are you looking forward to this year? There's probably significant directors doing independent stuff that hasn't got released yet or hasn't found the distributor that's going to come out. Yeah. So, But it's a nice starting place. So. I may give some of these the bums rush and just swipe them along. Sure. Uh, Kid Who Would Be King, that is Joe Cornish. He hasn't directed a film since Attack the Block. And that's oh. out in the next few weeks. And it's, a, it's like a kid's family thing about a kid who becomes the next King Arthur. It looks quite fun. There's a terrific example. Earlier we were talking about people who don't get a second chance. and Ah, but this also ties into what you were saying about people who kind of resist being sucked into yeah. the franchise machine. Because he was offered Star Trek Beyond, apparently. And he wrote Ant-Man. And he wrote Ant-Man. But he seems to have resisted... Uh, I don't know, making maybe perhaps obvious franchise choice, which is interesting. Yeah, because I think, I think he had a hand in Tintin too. Yeah, he uh, it was written by Stephen Moffat. Then when he took on Doctor Who, they brought in Edgar Wright and Joe Cornish to finish it off, basically. That's why those three of them have a screen rank. Yeah, and then Matey and Matey are in it as Thompson and Thompson. Exactly. Um, that, that's really exciting. And I was there day one for Attack the Block and... Uh, that's so I knew John Boyega before he got the Star Wars, and I was so excited because for a lot, I don't know, it, cinema going is personal and solipsistic. Some people were arguing, "Who's this guy and why does he get to be in a Star Wars film?" And I thought, "That's Moses. This is superb. <laughs> it's great." Because Attack the Block is a terrific film, and yeah, it, it's. I like to see whether it's. I don't care what kind of director it is, but Joe Cornish is a director with his own vision, with his own expression, and it's as you say, it's clear that he has been biding his time until he's been given. Um, sufficient rain to make the film he wants to make. That yeah. sounds good. I mean, yeah. Garth Jennings, his mate who did Son of Rambo, he's had a similar thing. Tried it with Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. That was an you know an attempt at something somewhat commercial. It was at least a, a known the, franchise. It was, it was visually inventive. Yeah, and it, it's good, but he didn't work. He hasn't really worked much since. He's in, he did Son of Rambo, but that's two pictures in fifteen years from one of the preeminent music video directors of this century. Yeah. You know, there's potential there to be like the UK's answer to Spike Jones or Michelle Gondry, but it hasn't quite yeah, happened yeah, yet. Yeah, yeah, I don't think I don't know if the talent's quite there, but with well, but, gosh, yeah. I'm excited for this Joe Cornish one. What's the next one? Uh, so uh, less significant, but the trailer's quite good, isn't it? Romantic is a rom com in which Rebel Wilson wakes up in an actual rom com. So rom coms are an interesting thing because I think most of us love a good one, but they very rarely make a good one. We had yeah. a really solid one with. Uh, Crazy Rich Asians last year, which I do think was flawed, but on balance got the laughs and the tears right. So I'm kind of, I, well, 
I, I am seeing that on Valentine's Day with my wife. So I'm really hoping Who's it's Who's directed good. it? Uh, no idea. Right. Because it does sound like... There's a John Candy picture called Delirious. He plays a soap writer and he wakes up after a head injury in his own soap. Which is fun. It works out okay. It gets better as it goes on. So who's done this one? Todd Strauss... <laughs> Todd Strauss Schulzen. Who directed a very Harold and Kumar oh, 3D Christmas But he did before. The Final Girls. Yes, was that good? Yeah, that was really good. The Final Girls is uh, a wonderful little horror pastiche in which, unsurprisingly from what you've said about this one, uh, characters wake up in a slasher picture oh, right. in the so 80s. It's the same idea. Yeah, and Thomas Middleditch is good in it. That's, that's fun. Well, this is the thing, um, again, talking about what we bring to the film that we see. Uh, the artist was revelatory to the mainstream audience... And surprising, oh, it's a silent film. But for me, I knew Hazanavicius's work as an arch-paradist. He'd already done a couple of spy films which were shot in the style of Bond pictures from the 60s um, called, what's it, OSS 187, Nest of Spies or something. Again, with Jean Dujardin. And so it was a natural progression. Somebody who had already made spy pastiches had then moved on to a different genre. Whereas for normal people who don't pay attention to films it was more like you're very oh, much no uh, you're very much uh, I didn't get the first album I bought the EP that was well, released yeah. six months before the first album it's, and it, it's, <laughs> it separates me from the populace and it's not actually a nice feeling it's also why well. many people don't like you yeah I'm, 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 I'm joking, <laughs> I'm joking. Um, <laughs> uh, right yeah so uh, Elite Battle Angel now I will be a big caveat to this it might well be shit Rodriguez is not a consistent filmmaker. No. But Cameron does seem to... James Cameron is heavily involved with his producer. And it does seem he's... You know, I talk about being a special effects junkie. One of the last trailer I watched this did actually look quite impressive on the visual front. It looks a little bit Ready Player One. But it also does look like they've put a lot of time into making something uh, that is quite fantastical, look quite organic, which I always find quite exciting. So I'm sort of... Can you bring that up? We'll see who's in it briefly. Because Cameron doesn't usually fuck about. He wrote Strange exactly. Days with Bigelow. That was superb. It's not as though he lends his name to any old tat, other than he did do Rambo 2. Yeah, but that was... But that was uh, a long time ago. It was like he hadn't even released Terminator, and it was a job for hire, effectively. Yeah. So. I thought this had already come out in America. No, it hasn't. Um, Ed Screen, Jackie O'Healy's in it. Christopher Waltz. Christopher Waltz, sorry. Um, Rosa Salazar is playing Alita. Uh, Mah- ah, Maharasha Ali's in it, and Jennifer Connelly. So it's got a good cast. Yeah, that's decent. Scroll down a bit more. Bill Pope's cinematography. Uh... Michelle Rodriguez. I thought Michelle Rodriguez was in it. Now she's in Avatar because Cameron loves. Ah, oh, I, I loves a tough Cameron. woman. He loves a tough woman. Yeah. If she's Hispanic, even better. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if. Um... Of course, yeah, because of Jeanette Goldstein. Yeah, in, uh, and that's aliens. the funniest thing. She's you know, uh, she's not Hispanic. She's Jewish. Who is? Jeanette Goldstein. I'm oh, sorry, of course. <laughs> and it, but we just we accepted the reality we were presented with, them. No, but we... I think no, but I think this taps into I think aesthetics override things. So we actually work with someone who is called oh, I don't want to say a name. She has a very Indian name, uh, and yet I just assumed she was Greek the entire time she worked at our company um, because she looks Greek. And then she said, and then she was she was talking about in being Indian. Are you Indian? And she was like, yes. My name is so-and-so damned. And I was like, yeah. oh, yeah, that's a really Indian name, isn't it? But because the aesthetic of her looking like she was Mediterranean overpowered her. And it's exactly the same thing with Goldstein. Of course she's Jewish. Yeah, yeah. But you just assume when you see her in Aliens, oh, there's a tough Latino woman. <laughs> yeah, because she's, she's wearing 
a bandana, olive skin. Yeah, and she says pandejo. In fact, it's, yeah. it's conspicuous the amount of things she drops in, the, the little slang words that she drops in. But, you know, that didn't make me think... I didn't wish that that role had gone to Maria Conchita Alonso or Rachel Ticketin. I thought, and everybody thought, Vasquez is amazing, that's superb. And the 80s wasn't a bad time, and uh, it might surprise some people, but it was Arnold Schwarzenegger was very insistent on getting uh, Latinas in his pictures with... Um, Who's the last one? So, Elpedia Carrillo in Predator and Maria Conchita Alonso, as I said, in Running Man and Rachel Ticketin in Total Recall. Elita, yeah, so that could be good. Yeah. Uh, I really like the How to Train Your Dragon films if you look for good animation and the trailer oh, for the third right, yeah. one is pretty solid. Third, blimey. That um, feels like that's had a TV spin-off at least, yeah. hasn't it? Yes, it has. Captain Marvel... I don't think the trailers are particularly great. It is a follow-on from... It's Marvel finally getting in the female superhero action lead game for oh, Wonder Woman and but it's got this interesting aspect which is it's going to have a supporting performance by Samuel L. Jackson in which they've de-aged him by 25 years oh, yeah. using I think uh, what's that film with him and Kevin Spacey Negotiator I think yeah. that's the template Yeah. and again as a special effects junkie it's annoyed me in a lot of films recently like uh, Star Wars uh, Rogue One um, where they try and do that in that film, but the Uncanny Valley puts me off. It's really mm. distracting. But ultimately, when they get it right, if they get it right, if they can, that will be a game changer because suddenly you're going to be in a situation where it's like, Lucas talked about this 20, 25 years ago, but it's kind of dismissed. We are now getting there. What happens if you can resurrect actors? Yeah. Will the Marilyn Monroe estate uh, say, yeah, you can recreate her and make a film with you Marilyn know, Monroe? Scarier, you know. It's I mean, it's, it's expensive to do, so I don't think it's going to... It's not like we're going to stop using actors. People ultimately want to see something real. But I do think it'll be a game changer. because You are, I think you, if they can pull it off, and they might in Marvel, you are going to see it happen. You're going to see the old stars resurrected, or you're going to say, hey, you want to see Tom Cruise in his prime? We got it. Actually, that's a bad example, because he still looks about 30. But for, <laughs> for five years, we've been saying what a loss it was. We'll never see Philip Seymour Hoffman take those old man roles, take those maturer roles in his 50s and his 60s. What could he have been? I actually don't. I don't want to see it. I don't want to. No, I don't see, want to a, see a that fucking either. hologram, Philip Seymour Hoffman. No, I don't. Uh, yeah, it raises questions. What I was going to say about that one is that it's by um, the the team behind Half Nelson and Sugar. One of which oh, is of a course. woman. It's yeah. Ryan Fleck Amy Fleck. And, oh, oh, Ryan Fleck and Amy something. Adams. <laughs> yeah. Amy Sedaris. Anna Bowden and Ryan yeah. Fleck. And they're good. Um, well, this is the thing. Marvel take interesting independent directors, and. You could argue that they homogenise them slightly, but I also think on the flip side they tend to add a bit of soul and fun to, like, you know, uh, Thor Ragnarok with Taika Waititi. Yeah, you know. I can't really fault it. I've looked into it and analysed it in different ways, and um, they take an interesting director. That in, that director does fairly interesting work within the Marvel canon. Yeah. Then they move on. You know, after Iron Man 3... Black did Nice Guys, which exactly. I think is terrific. We're waiting for the next one from Taika Waititi, but it's... Rabbit? Jojo Rabbit? It certainly hasn't... It's, it's got a... It's a left-field <laughs> idea. It's not commercial. Yeah. It's no, like t a... T tell them. Is it, is it like about... It's something to do with Hitler and a boy who yeah. has a... Oh, I don't know. A, uh, I think it's that a Jewish lad during World War Two has an imaginary friend who is Hitler, played by Taika Waititi, who is of Maori descent. <laughs> Which is, uh, all of it's mental. Yeah, but this is the thing. It's great to see him going, rather than doing another big blockbuster thing, going, right, I'm going to use some clout now and make something weird and left field. Yeah, just go, go straight back to, I did that one time. That was fun. Well, actually, I'm going back I'll to what I did. I'm going to skip my list because it brings back to, on the same theme, 
Knives Out is probably the film I'm looking most forward to. Knives Out. Knives What's Out. What's this? This is the next film from Ryan Johnson of Looper, Brick, yeah. and thing. And it's about, um, I think the plot is that it's like kind of about a modern day Poirot uh, detective kind of figure played by Daniel Craig. Not much else is known about it. But, I mean, you've seen Brick, right? Yeah. It's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's, good. it's a really great genre piece, and I do think that he, Johnson, I think he's a master of genre, and I think when he takes to different things, whether it's science fiction or whether it's you know a detective drama, transplanting that into a high school setting, he, he just knows how to navigate the contours of that yeah. really, really well. And Knives Out sounds most like Brick out of all of those things, because presumably there will be a mystery element. Yeah. Um, also, the cast is brilliant. I took the, tr- the trouble to write it down because it's great. Daniel Craig, Chris Evans... Uh, Lakeith Stanfield, Michael Shannon, uh, your man there who's on your wallpaper, Don Johnson, uh, <sighs> Jamie Lee Curtis, Tony Collette, Christopher Plummer. Good, good. That is really good. Yeah, it's really good. And, and it's just, it's great to see he has been signed up to do a new Star Wars trilogy with uh, Kathleen Kennedy, which is one of the few things that hasn't been cancelled yet. <laughs> but I yeah. love the fact that, you know, it's over, we're only a year. It's going to be two years. Two years between The Last Jedi and Knives Out, and hopefully that'll be interesting. Speaking of two-year gaps, and this is really almost on top of us, Us, the next film from uh, Jordan Peele. Yeah. Uh, it'd be interesting to see if he was a one-hit wonder or not. I suspect not because he's, his work as a sketch writer with um, the other one, Key and Peele. Yeah, yeah. Key and Michael Key. <laughs> That's the one. Uh, that was quite rich um, politically and uh, dramatically and in terms of comedy. So... I'm hoping us the trailer's great. Hopefully, it will be another good one. I do like Dave Chappelle's uh, dismissal of it, though. He went us. No, of of Key and Peele. When mentioned in his stand-up, he says something like, uh, "Oh yeah, uh, Key and Peele. Yeah, they're the guys that do my show now on Comedy Central." Ah. And I like because it is something of a continuation of the work that was started by Dave Chappelle. Uh, you've mentioned one of uh, another of our patron saints, which is Lakeith Stanfield again in a very organic way. Me and my dad fell in love with Atlanta. Luke loves it too. Brilliant show. Luke loved Get Out. More than I did. I like it. Luke thinks it's fantastic. Actually, I think it was his favourite film of the other year. I'm with Luke. And Lakeith was in Short Term 12 with Alison Brie. No, yes. Alison Brie? No, Brie Larson. Sorry, yeah. I always get that. He's also Captain Marvel. Yeah. So um, Short Term 12 was really good. And so I've been watching Lakeith for a while without even necessarily knowing I was. He's in... Um, He's in Snowden too. I remember oh, texting he? my dad once I got out of the cinema and saying, guess what? Darius, well, we call him Derek. I can't remember why. But uh, Derek is in Snowden. He's getting these small roles. And that's what I thought was happening with Get Out too. But since, sorry to bother you, uh, he's hot property. You know, he's on the cover of interesting magazines. Well, what was the, the other thing you said was about um, Ryan Johnson moving through genre. That's, that's interesting. I like that. That's what Lars von Trier does. Makes different genre pictures, but it's always a Lars von Trier film. So Antichrist is his idea of a horror film. It may be no one else's idea yeah. of a horror film. Yeah. But that, and the same with Melancholia. This is my end of the world movie. It's an apocalypse film, you know, like 2012 or Independence but Day. But it's his version. Yeah, it's a very version. whacked out yeah. individual idiosyncratic rendition. But nevertheless, and yeah, that's interesting because Ryan Johnson was good. Last Jedi, I can't be bothered to talk about it now. I thought it was going to go... It's probably his weakest film, but I also yeah. think it's a testament to his talent that... There's a lot of great stuff in there visually and thematically, at least in terms of how it plays in this in this sort of Star yeah. Wars mythology. When we were told that it was going in a different direction, I really thought that might be cinematically. I expected potentially handheld camera work. I expected it to look unlike other Star Wars films. Which he doesn't. I it, yeah. Maybe I, maybe to a fault. I I didn't think he left enough of an imprint on it. 
but I did, broadly speaking, I like that it finally positioned the Star Wars universe in the dirt and the mud of normal people with the end shot of the kid being essentially being radicalised, if we're honest. You yeah. know, that's the sort of language we should use. That was interesting. So, yeah, bring on that one. Knives out, indeed. So, uh, us is out. Um, Avengers Endgame will probably be the biggest film of the year. We've already kind of talked about that, so I'll skip through it. Going back to great sort of quasi-action renaissance, John Wick 3. I yeah. quite like the the way they build the mythology of that in the last film. I don't think the last film was quite as stellar as the first. But it has a comic book sense to... I don't think it's based on a graphic novel, but it feels like it is. Mm. Like with the way they build the universe of the Continental Hotel and this Assassin's Code. Uh, I, yeah. I really, really like that film. I thought, and, I'm, and I'm hoping... Yeah, that's a that's a good one. It's it, a, could be, it has the potential to be a classic. Trilogy. That's a film that, as you say, it, it seems to be original. There doesn't, as far as we're aware, there isn't a source text. But it arrived with its own mythology. As soon as the film begins, every character is saying essentially, "Don't fuck with John Wick because you don't want John Wick to come back." Yeah. And for the first fifteen minutes, I was thinking, I'm not sure you can do that with a character to just have other people say this is the ultimate badass and don't awaken him but it really did work and then he goes to town I didn't see the second one but I like um, you mentioned it earlier I haven't seen much Stahelski I saw David Leach's Atomic Blonde thought that was fantastic and in terms of Amazing action renaissance action film. yeah 45 minutes to plot but the action is I, I liked it I liked that you luxuriated this, this is the thing with Atomic Blonde what I, the first thing I took away from it is that it is a film about its locale it's about Berlin and I'm not saying because I've been there three times I know but what it felt like to be in Berlin at that time of liberation, emancipation, and emancipating influence on everyone around. James McAvoy's character there, living like a fat rat, as um, you know, dealing on the black market. It was exciting. It had a sense of place. And not just, although it did it as well, not just a soundtrack. Some pictures, they, they use that as a shorthand, don't they? So someone arrives in London and you have London calling by the flash. <laughs> and there were touches of that in Atomic Blonde, but it was much more honest. And one example is... I think it's under pressure that it plays in its entirety. Yes, right at the end. Yeah, and when a film curtails a track... Yes, it annoys me. Yeah, that kind of... It doesn't... I saw Bumblebee last week. That does a lot of that. And it's like, oh no, just let it play out. It's a great song. I I don't think songs should be held in immaculate reverence, but when a film plays a track in its entirety, it says something about the mentality and the sensibility of the filmmakers. I'm trying to think of another example. Well, essentially, as we talked about Boogie Nights, I get something from that, from hearing the tracks in their entirety, yeah. the, the ebb and flow of the scene. It actually does add something to the scene as well, because it reminds you that it's... Because uh, it's diegetic, I suppose, in that context. Because he's listed, cause I'm thinking it's Alfred Molina is playing the songs on his record. Yeah. So actually, it adds to the sense of realism that one track ends, the next one begins. And the character's going, oh yeah, you've got to hear this. Yeah. Um, which is important in the scene where you're trying to build tension. Yeah. Um, uh, I was going to bring it back to something else I talked about. I've mentioned Rocket Man. That could be interesting. Toy Story Four. Oh, uh, blimey! I mean, put look, it away. Look, a lot of people are trepidatious about that because the last one did perfectly. At the end of the day, they have smashed it out of the park three times with that. They might do it a fourth time. You know, my problem with Pixar, as it has been for the last five to eight years, is that they now make more sequels than they do original pictures. And that and was not the case for a good what, yeah. 15 years of their existence. Yeah, and so just in the last, I'll be fuzzy on the numbers, but in post Wally, we've had Toy Story 3, Toy Story 4, Monsters, Monsters 2, Nemo 2, Credit Cars 2. 2. What was the other one? 
Incredibles 2. Shit, yeah, Incredibles 2 cars, 3, so that's 7 sequels. Planes, planes, fire and rescue. Even even putting them to one yeah. side, 7 sequels, 7 of their last, like, 11 films have been sequels. And the original ones, yes, Inside Out, I understand, was good and so was Coco, but Good Dinosaur was something of a misfire. Yeah. Um, and I think that it's not that there isn't creativity in sequels, but whatever creativity you find in that sequel, presumably you could also generate in something original. I don't like working off properties the whole time. Yeah. It's just, I have the same reservation with British television. It's constant Dickens, Austin, anything that's in the public domain, <laughs> yeah. Sherlock Holmes. You know, we had. Name is currently on. Yeah. Two. There was about. Well, at least that's being done somewhat originally because there's no singing. Yeah. But about six years ago, there was three simultaneous Sherlock Holmes adaptations the one with Johnny Lee Miller and Lucy Liu, the one at the cinema with Robert Downey and Jude Law, and then Sherlock with. Cumberbatch and Timon from The Office. Yeah, all at the same time. And that's in addition to every other detective show, which is, you know, like House is basically yeah, sure. Sherlock Holmes. And yeah. Robert De Niro once said he's never done Shakespeare because every every theme explored in Shakespeare you can find in modern stuff. And yeah. I think True. it's it's gutless to take a property and say, well, it, it I'll make a uh, I'll draw a parallel with um, any film. So I've been thinking about Die Hard recently, and what Die Hard does well is it engenders sympathy and alliance with its central character, right? Its protagonist. In the first 10-15 minutes, there's a number of things it does which make him our guy. But too many films, if you ask them, why do we care about, let's say, why do we care about Chris Pratt? Well, because he's the lead. Yeah, but why do we care about him? He's, he's the protagonist. No, you're not answering the question. You've got to make me care about the protagonist. And Die Hard does that well. It gets him on the plane. It shows that he's got humility when he's speaking. With, you know the film well, don't you? Yeah. Speaking with the guy, it shows he's got humility because they have an... Um, uh, a nice back and forth and the bloke gives him advice which John McClane follows then you see again another way in which he's our guys he's a little bit dangerous he flirts only by looking at her but he flirts with the stewardess there's a frisson between them yeah. um, then they engender more sympathy by he immediately meets the working class black guy and befriends him he doesn't say alright here we go limo driver take me to my destination he says I've never done this before which is open you know and yeah. humble and the other guy and our girl says I've never done this either. Uh, and I think they ride up front together is what they do yeah. in the end. And all of that generates sympathy for the protagonist. Some films, they forget to do any of that shit and they just say, well, he's the lead, so you've got to like him. There you go. We can't <laughs> yeah. even be bothered to write it. it, it <laughs> how long does it take? Three hours? Eight pages? Well, I would say that with character, a little bit can go a long way. Yeah. And I always say gravity. You know so little about Sandra Bullock's character and gravity. So little. Yeah. But you know enough to kind of be able to go with her. Um Next, a film that uh, I'd say one of the top three I'm looking forward to next year, and we know almost nothing about it, not even the title, is Untitled Danny Boyle Musical, which has been written by Richard Curtis. And I, I didn't th even know it was a musical. Yeah, and I think that has the potential to be quite interesting, partly because I think Curtis is obviously a very populist writer, but he has an edge to him at times. I rewatched Four Weddings. It's quite adult. Like, it subverts the, what you expect from that kind of film quite well. Mm. And when you actually get to the funeral, it's quite dark. Um, uh, obviously... He's not always great. I mean, we'll, we'll brush Love Actually under the carpet for now. But yeah. Danny Boyle, I think, his last three films have been hamstrung by weak scripts, even considering the fact that one of them was written by one of the best screenwriters currently working in Aaron Sorkin. <sighs> um, 
I liked but Steve Jobs, though. I did quite like it, but I think the ending's a massive cheat. But that's a, yeah. that's a debate for another time. Um, I think his films have been hamstrung by scripts, but he always brings his A-game. Trainspotting 2 is very problematic, but as a director, he just brings so much visual flair and imagination. And you almost feel like he's just going with whims sometimes, but he does give you something you haven't seen before. So the idea of him doing a musical, let alone one written by Richard Curtis, I think could be very interesting. I see what you're saying. So, And actually, and it also ties back into a thing about... What are all the big word of mouth hits been recently? Yeah, they are yeah. the musical, quasi musical. So, so this that... is this is, and it's not even this is. I was going to say it's not his first musical, but Slumdog Millionaire has a musical number at the end. It's not a musical, yeah. admittedly. Was but... Life Less Ordinary? Does that have a musical element? I've never seen it. It does. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it does have musical elements. Again, it's not a musical, but it has an understanding of where to position musical sequences. Yeah. yeah. Um, this sounds like it will be a huge hit because it's Richard Curtis and. I, I often forget because Danny Boyle to me is train spotting 28 days later. I liked Trance, Sunshine as well. But yeah, he's also Slumdog Millionaire. He won yeah. the Academy Award that took, I don't know how much around the world. Quite a lot. I mean, this is an untapped market, I believe. I always wonder, like, we hear about diversity arguments. No one ever really, no, no one ever posits, what if an American film was made directed at Indians? Yeah. Jesus Christ. The amount of money they could take, I mean, dipping out of Bollywood's pockets, but they, <laughs> they haven't done it so far. I suppose they feel they're yeah. quite distinct. But the, the same arguments are being made in America. We hear arguments made in favour of greater representation of Japanese-Americans, Korean-Americans, Chinese-Americans. Japan and China has its own cinemas, you know. China has the Hong Kong cinema, the Jackie Chan stable, John Woo, and yet they're, being, they're increasingly being catered to by Hollywood. I wonder how long before Hollywood realises... Shit, those Indians have money, man. And well, if... they've done it with China, so you're right. Maybe yeah. They'll, maybe they'll do it with India as well. Um, next film, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, new mm. Tarantino uh, offering. Um, I'm a little bit nervous about it because the cast Margot Robbie is Sharon Tate, and I'm a little bit worried about Tarantino <laughs> with his sense of exploitation going into that murder, which was absolutely horrific. When you read the details of it, it is a horrific, brutal thing that happened um i'm maybe i'm being unkind because i actually think you know i think i think he uses sensationalism to often make interesting points and it's possible he's going to do that it's also possible he's not going to show the murder the truth is we don't know yeah but having said that i just think it's interesting i'm really looking forward to seeing dicaprio playing a washed up actor buddying up with his former stuntman played by brad pitt that just sounds quite fun right it's got to have a period setting he's obviously someone who's very la and who's very yeah. about film so, you know, you mentioned earlier that kind of may have stunted him, but it also has on several occasions played to his strengths, you know, namely Pulp Fiction, Inglorious Bastards. So, yeah, hopefully, hopefully that'll be great. It's certainly got a great cast. I think Pacino's in it as well. Shit, Pacino, not bad. I know Burt Reynolds was going to be in it, didn't film any scenes and then died. Yeah. I think that there's, Tarantino lacks depth, but it doesn't diminish the enjoyment I take from his films. I've only seen Hate for Late once, but... Jackie Brown, Inglorious Bastards, both superb. I could watch. What something Tarantino does brilliantly well is most of his films are revenge narratives, and there's a lot to be said for what he does in Inglorious Bastards about Jews seeking revenge on the Third Reich. I think the world he creates is preferable to reality, and I don't think it's asinine that he did it, that he essentially made a revenge comedy drama about the Holocaust and World War II. I like his version better. No, I, you know, I I agree. I wish it had finished that way in 1944. So who else have we got in here? Great. Emil Hirsch, Luke Perry, Damien Lewis. Damien Lewis is Steve McQueen. Great casting, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, Al Pacino, uh, Clifton Collins Jr., Dakota Fanning. Yes, I love Clifton Collins Jr. <laughs> uh, Lena Dunham is in it. Uh, uh. <laughs> Maya Hawke. Uh, I don't know who that is. It's Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman's daughter. What? Who I and we've got Rumor Willis as well there. Who I think uh, Sophia Coppola wanted to put in the Little Mermaid at the brief period when Disney were thinking of giving her the Little Mermaid, which didn't happen. Right. Why didn't they? I don't think they wanted to cast Maya Hawk. I think that was it. But uh, there might be more to it. Did she then offer them Kirsten Dunst? I bet she did. Probably. So Zoe Belge, Bruce Dernigood, Roth Madsen, Kurt Russell, Ola Fantastic, James Marsden, Ramar. This is oh, it's, it's in crazy. Ramar's in it. Yeah. Marsden. Danny Oliphant, Strong. Clue Gulliger's still alive. This is nuts. <laughs> anyway, it's got the potential to be great. If Tarantino, probably Tarantino, Men- uh, there's a school of thought that since Menke went, his editor, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think he's that's... kind of been a bit ropey. Still great. I don't think I've never not enjoyed one of his films, with a caveat that I haven't seen Death Proof. Um, one of my big arguments about representation, it's important, but sometimes it, I, I, identity politicians speak as though women have no impact in cinema and uh, have been not only sidelined, but that it's a, a completely a boys' club. And I look at it and I think that's a complete misunderstanding. Gail Ann Hurd was pivotal to the career of James Cameron, yeah. as was Catherine Bigelow. Uh, Sally Menke... To, to my extent, that's a symbiotic relationship. Sally Menke and Quentin Tarantino and Schumacher and Scorsese. Kathy Kennedy is the second most powerful person in Hollywood behind Kevin Feige. 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 I'm, pretty sure, Feige. I'm pretty sure it's Feige. Behind Kevin Feige. And there are numerous instances. Uh, Julia Phillips in the 70s producing Taxi Driver and Close Encounters. I know they're not all directors. I know they may not be above the title. But women have long held not just power but influence, and to pretend as though it's something that was invented two years ago, well, uh, I think that's a I tremendous disservice. No, no, I don't think anyone's saying that. I, I think... I mean, the, the fact Kennedy is, the fact the is there is a, legitimate question, there's a legitimate question about how many women are in important story uh, who are in directing and screenwriting roles. In, and then no one's saying Thelma Schoonmaker never happened, but it's still an issue, it's still a legitimate issue. Yeah, but I don't like... I, I, I'll use one of their words, I don't like... The tacit erasure of women that no one's being erased though. I feel like they're not being given their due, as if to be an editor is not important. It's okay. No, that's that's a a legitimate thing. But you could apply that as a problem across that is not gender specific. Like if you actually ask most people to name an editor, most people couldn't. Even hardened filmmakers, not filmmakers, film fans like us, would go to Schoonmaker first, obviously. Um, Yeah. But you know, like who else have you got? I know. Um, well, <laughs> that's a good question. How many editors can we? I'd have to down? think of if Michael Kahn's an editor, right? Yeah, let's go with that. From yeah, from I think Back to the Future. Well, the age James of Kathy Cameron co-edited Titanic. I know that much. <laughs> yeah, the, one of the fun things with Titanic is that Menke. We mentioned Menke. Yeah, Cameron brought Russell Carpenter on board for True Lies as DP, and kept him on for Titanic, and that's given that bloke a cachet which may be unearned. I feel. Who sorry? He brought who? Russell was? Carpenter. Oh right. It, um, who otherwise is a relatively uh, modest cinematographer, but because he got the Academy Award for Titanic, I think he's had a much more notable career than perhaps would have happened. Yeah. Not enough female DPs. That's an inter- that's a really interesting thing. Yeah. Somewhat a la carte about this. No. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Nineteen seventeen. Uh, this is Sam Mendes is doing a World War One film for Amblin Spielberg. 
So I don't know any much about it, but I actually think Mendes is generally pretty solid. Well, yeah, Spectre's a bit rubbish, but every director has their flop, you know what I mean? Not really his fault, is it? There's no, just exactly. too much mythology in that one. Well, absolutely. And uh, But I, again, he's a director who goes, right, I'm going to do a period gangster film. Right, here's going to be here's my war film. And his war film is really interesting, Jarhead, because there's no war in it. Yeah. Um, uh, Revolutionary Road. Uh, he did direct one of the best Bond films before directing one of the weakest ones. I think he's solid, and I'm curious to see what he does with the World War One film. And also, you don't really see many World War One films. Yeah, you know, War enough. Horse was one. There was a great documentary released last year by Peter Jackson. But in terms of you know narrative uh, based, uh, in terms of a narrative cinema thing, there's not that many. And I'm curious to see what Mendes does. Oh, um, why is that? Is it because the scale of its inhumanity was so colossal that it's difficult to contemplate? So there's, when we look at Holocaust films, it's all about suffering, but also perhaps transcending that to survive out the other side. World War Two is the noblest war, and then yeah. Vietnam pictures are usually about America analysing itself, you know, simple men out there not knowing what they're doing. Why is it we don't have World War One movies? There were some in, like, All Quiet on the Western Front, there were some in the 30s, but yeah, I've always felt it's been I think you've always hit the nail on the head, I think. World War Two is inherently noble. So you get an absolute plethora of films in the next 20, 30 years about the heroes from there. And mm. it continues to this day. It's just a trickier war, isn't it? And also maybe just because it's older, how many... Can you find new interesting ways of forming a trench? It's yeah. curious that it's called 1917. Is it a World War One film? Or is it about a lot of things that were happening that year? You know, uh, There's a lot going on in Russia. It's a very pivotal turning point yeah. in world history. So it'll be interesting to see what that's about. And finally, a sequel to a film that came out 19 years ago. We've been waiting for it for years. The sequel to Samuel L. Jackson's Shaft is out this year. Oh, yeah. Starring it... a new person as his son or nephew or something. And featuring Samuel L. Jackson. And I'm pretty sure it's got Richard Roundtree in. As... So we've got three generations so, And Shaft. also, this is interesting. This is the Shaft universe. Because they're <laughs> not remakes. The, yeah. the, the Sam Jackson Shaft is essentially a sequel. Yeah. Or spin-off set in the same universe. As is the new Shaft. So... Also, they're all called Shaft, aren't they? Yeah. There's no. It's interesting when you often when you do these franchise things, you have to make a distinction. So you do Star Trek the motion picture, then you do Star Trek, and that's been used. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So now then you've got to have Star Trek call them something. They haven't bothered with Shaft. All three films are called Shaft. Halloween <laughs> has this problem. Uh, we haven't yet decided what to call the new Halloween. The one from twenty years ago at least went with Halloween H twenty. So what was the last one called? Was it just called Halloween? Halloween. Yeah. So that's now the third film called Halloween: <laughs> The Carpenter, The Rob Zombie remake, and this one here. So it's tricky. Um, you know, Django's wife is uh, ancestor of Shaft Two. In Django Unchained, her character is called uh, Von Shaft. Really? Yeah, and she's no meant way. to. She's meant to be John Shaft's great grandmother. Wow. That's why he's so dope. Who's directing Shaft? Let's have a look. Because uh, the, the one with Christian Bale as the white supremacist baddie, it was okay. I think Singleton directed that, but... Tim Story. Oh, he did Barbershop, I think. I didn't realise Tim Story... He's a black director. I didn't realise he did the Fantastic Four films. Yeah. That's quite interesting. Again, erasure, mate. <laughs> if he doesn't fit the narrative, they don't want to talk about it. But yeah, he's got uh, uh, two big studio pictures there. Yeah. Cool. They're just not particularly good. That's <laughs> done. So, 
We've covered 2019, we've covered 2018. Now we need to cover what you're doing for the next six months. So I'm a stand-up comedian. You wouldn't think it from listening to this because I haven't really said anything that funny. But um, but I run a night in London Bridge, the Miller, called Hoopla Fresh. And we have established names of TV, including Phil Kay, Tony Lord, John Kearns, Lou Sanders, among others. They headline... And then we have the best acts on the circuit doing new material. It's totally free. That's every Monday. And I will be there comparing on February the 11th and February the 18th. If you live in Hoxton, I'll be at Comedy Cabin Raw at Hoxton Cabin on the 20th of February. And I'll be at Bethnal Green Backyard Comedy Bar on March the 28th. That sets us up and then you'll have to come back in April. We'll talk about Paul Thomas Anderson and then you can prep us for May, June, July. Oh, and you'll be in Edinburgh during that time as well. It's not official. I'll actually be at Brighton Fringe doing a, a split hour. So I'll be doing 30 minutes and then another comedian, a great comedian called Darius Tabataba will be doing 30 minutes. And that's on May the 11th and 12th at the Duke of Wellington in Brighton. And that'll be at three o'clock in the afternoon. The tickets aren't available yet, but they will be at some point in February. And I'm hoping to do the same thing in Edinburgh, but I need to sort my shit out. I need to get my house in order. You need a second to take... Half of that hour. Yes, because the Darius can't do Edinburgh, so I'm basically speaking to strangers now. <laughs> Desperately, because all my comedy friends have already buddied up. So I'm the kid in the odd-numbered classroom who has no car <laughs> in the gym. Yeah. Uh, so I've got to find someone. Maybe this will help you. This will put the tendrils out. Yeah. And you can be contacted through your website, which is... I've forgotten what it is. It's, some, it's a funny pun, isn't it? What is? Your website. Aiden McComedy? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say it's a funny, and I wouldn't even say it classifies as a pun. It's just, it's just is what it is, isn't it? Well, I have uniformity through all social media, so it's Aiden McComedy on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and my website. Every, every time at work you say the Aiden Oscars, I think to myself, <laughs> it's so whack that it's honest and it becomes fun again. And that's what I was thinking the whole time I, I was sometimes saying the nominations. Them, I sometimes call them the Golden Aidens. <laughs> Uh, in fact, I can, do you want to know who won the Golden Aidens this year? I can quickly run through it. Yes, please. So, best for, the Golden Aiden for Best Film, Actress, Supporting Actor, Screenplay went to three billboards. Uh, the Golden Director went to Peter Ramsey, Robert Parishetti Jr. and Rodney something for Spider-Man Spider-Verse. Yeah. Golden Aiden for Best Actor went to Bradley Cooper for Star Wars Born. Golden, oh. uh, Golden Aiden for Best Supporting Actress went to Leslie Manville for Phantom Thread. And the, be- the Golden Aiden for Best Documentary went to Bombshell, the Heidi Lamar story, which is very, very interesting. And uh, then other films won technical Aidens. <laughs> <laughs> and that was announced two weeks ago. Yeah, by, well, uh, those ones don't get televised. Jessica Biel and Michael Pena, yeah. or David Dasmalkian. Or someone yeah. who was famous like 12 years ago. Yeah. Uh, who's a very naughty actor who could present the technical awards. Zach Braff. Oh, um, Dane Cook. Dane Cook and Zach Braff <laughs> presented uh, the technical awards. Um, that's as simple as it can be, Academy. You don't require a, a four-hour telecast which always overruns and is hamstrung by accusations of this, that and the other against anybody who's selected for it. I think they should just go with Ellen again. I think that's the safest bet, although she's discounted herself from hosting. You, you just do it like that. I, I think there is something to be said because this is the thing. There's honouring the best films of the year and there's making an entertainment spectacle out of it. And I think we're fast approaching a time where... The, the majority of people say, listen, can you just stick it on a website somewhere? You know, have, li- literally have like Steven Spielberg come out, read it out well, in 10 minutes. That's how most people do it. Like, uh, I often watch it, but I also often just wake up and read my Guardian news alert. And yeah. Go, yeah. There was a golden age for best stunt work. 
But we, oh. but we, it was an honorary one. It was a special achievement one because there's only one nominee, uh, which was uh, Mission Impossible Fallout. Yeah. So it did. There wasn't. It wasn't a competitive category. We just gave a special award for a technical achievement to the stunt team uh, of uh, Mission Impossible Fallout. It's like Irving G. Thalberg Award. And the Aidan Quinn Award for Best Costume Design went to uh, Black Panther. <laughs> Uh, Far out. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for and having we'll, me. We'll have you back again yeah. as soon as possible, but that will probably be in like 12 weeks because yeah. I'm terrible at scheduling. And best of luck with the upcoming gigs. I hope that any heckles that they provide you with are film-based so you can shoot <laughs> back. Maybe that will be it. They'll say, listen, I've no problem with what you're saying comedically. However, I do have a problem with A Quiet Place. And here we go, and it'll just be a two-minute screen. Or I'll that. just do that American-style comedy thing of going to someone in the audience commenting on who they look like in film. Oh, so yeah, they yeah. come <laughs> in, and I go, thank you, Janet Goldstein from Aliens. Yeah. <laughs> we have a few more features for your spring cinematic schedule. Out now, nationwide, are Barry Jenkins' Moonlight follow-up, If Bill Street Could Talk, and some deranged-looking thing called Piercing starring Chris Abbott and my second favourite Polish-Australian, Mia Vazakowska. The Prince Charles is showing Lanthimos's Dogtooth on February 25th, a wonderful Scorsese double bill on the 27th, The King of Comedy, and Luke Littleboy approved After Hours, with Prince in Under the Cherry Moon on Wednesday, March 6th, and before then, a Taika all-nighter, Saturday, February 23rd, showing all his films as director. At the Regent Street, March 5th provides a second chance to take in Adam Mackay's Vice, March 8th is The Harder They Come, which is unmissable. And the weekend of March 23rd and 24th marks the Sound Screen Festival and a deluge of music documentaries including Oil City Confidential and This Is Pop, the latter of which Luke and I hope to attend ourselves. We're keen to hear what you're watching. Find us on Instagram and Facebook and our own website, onesensationalshop.com. On eBay, we are One Sensational Shop. And whether you've been listening to us on Spotify or on iTunes or on Stitcher, please leave us a review. I've been Fletcher Walton. You've been listening to The Evening Glass. Join us again soon on One Sensational Shop. I'm going to shoot off some after I bet you are.